0: We are back in, uh, I almost said Matthew again, Mark 7. Mark 7 is where we are. And we're in the middle of this passage where Jesus uh, has been interacting with the Pharisees and the scribes uh, about the nature of defilement. And so we're going to pick up in verse 14, uh, where Jesus shifts his attention from the scribes and the Pharisees to the crowd. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust you with all our heart, to lean not on our own understanding. And as we acknowledge you in all of our ways, uh, please make our ways straight, correct our crooked ways, and remove our guilt and shame through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, I am not a scientist, nor do I claim to be a scientist, but, uh, nor did I sleep at a holiday inn last night, um, but I think I now understand enough to, to explain how viruses work in an oversimplified fashion. And what happens is that a virus uh, enters into your body uh, and enters into a particular part of your body. In case of COVID-19, it's often the respiratory system. And so uh, you have a cell, and then you have the little virus coming along, and he attaches to the outside of the cell, and it's almost like a pirate. Uh, so what the, what the pirate does is tries to penetrate the outer barrier of the cell, the cell membrane, so that he can then use what's existing in the cell to replicate. The virus doesn't replicate on its own. It needs a host. It's a parasite. Essentially, and so it needs a a, a host cell uh, so it can plunder the riches within the cell in order to make more viruses and spit them out into your body uh, Therefore wreaking havoc upon your body. That's essentially how a virus works And apologies to all the scientists who are just offended by my rather simplified uh, explanation of this And it's the replication of the cells that uh, often makes us sick, along with what that replication creates within the body. And I bring this up in the sense of trying to, again, understand uh, what defiles a human being, uh, what creates their lack of acceptance before God. And the Pharisees were very focused about that which is outside of them, which could possibly come into them like a virus. And there's a sense in which they almost understood uh, sin as a virus. Now, they didn't have a grasp of viruses back in that day, uh, so that's sort of anachronistic. But looking back, that's basically how they viewed it. Something out there comes into you and makes you all wonky and messed up. But that's not how Jesus saw it. The Pharisees and the scribes, because of how they understood sin, began to measure holiness on the basis of their their human tradition as well as external things, things that were controllable by us. But what is the source of true defilement? And that is what Jesus gets to. He has just criticized the way the Pharisees and scribes understood this, and now he begins to address the crowd. He he turns his attention to them and and calls them, hear me, all of you, and understand. This is similar to when he began to speak parables earlier in Mark's gospel. There's a a call to to pay attention, straighten up, because maybe they weren't paying attention, and He wants them to understand. He wants them to listen, and he wants them to think, and he wants them to put these ideas together in their minds. That's the idea there behind understand, Uh, that you're taking the concepts and you're putting the puzzle together so that it all makes sense, because they were not putting the pieces together properly, and it wasn't making sense. They had been listening to the Pharisees, and their minds were all uh, jumbled. This indicates to us that Christianity or faith is not something that is apart from thinking, uh, but is connected to thinking. R.C. Sproul has noted that you don't have to give up your intellect to trust the Bible. You have to give up your pride, which means your dependence upon yourself to understand all things. And so Jesus is calling them to think, to understand, not simply accept because some authority has said something. Knowing the truth, and not the happy little lies of our culture or any culture, or the happy lies of tradition. Okay? Knowing the truth is faith seeking understanding. And that's what Jesus is calling them to at this point in time. You see, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were depending upon something Besides the word of God. And Jesus instructs these people, nothing outside can defile him. But things that come out defile him. In the sense that you can go, huh? Wait a minute. It would be easy to think uh, that Jesus is talking about what comes out of your body physically. But that's really not what he's getting at. Scribes and Pharisees, as I said, have looked in all of the wrong places for the source of sin and defilement. They looked outside of the body, and they were worried about things coming into the body. And so as a result, they focused on hand-washing. They focused on certain foods you could eat and other foods you could not eat. And one of those foods you could not eat, as some have mentioned lately, are bats. Uh, we did have a bat visit our house the other day, and I joked around about it's time for some bat stew. We didn't actually do that, Uh, not because of the Levitical law, but just because bats kind of creeped me out. Um, Having had to remove bats from my house when I was a kid, bats don't like them, okay? Can't imagine eating them. Anyway, it's not that which is outside. They focused not just on uh, these physical things like hand-washing and foods, but they also focused on the appearance of evil, or staying away from people who did the wrong thing. They built hedges so they wouldn't break the the law of God, but they also practiced their own form of social distancing from people that they considered wicked, the people who didn't practice uh, the tradition of the elders. Now, we would think that if someone is going to get what Jesus said, if someone's going to put it all together in their minds, it's going to be the disciples right? Once again, you would be disappointed. They they go into the house, where where apparently Jesus and the disciples are staying, and they ask Jesus what in the world he meant by this parable, and he laments. Then, are you also without understanding? And I realize I just did a typo in your notes. It should be without understanding. But he uses a different word. "Are, Are you also Foolish. Or, in the words of Murray Goldberg, morons. Are you morons? Is it not? How is it you can't understand this? They didn't put things together. They lacked the understanding. And as a result, they're also susceptible to what I'll call toxic religion. a form of religion that is external, that is legalistic, and punishes other human beings. For instance, we've got to love the six-foot rule, don't we? The, the the form of social distancing until you go into a store. And there's no way in the world you can actually keep the six-foot rule because at some point you have to pass somebody unless you only have two people in an aisle at a time and they both come out the way they went in, Right? Or one of them does and the other one follows. Either way, it's impossible. But some people are militant about this. And they're being fed by certain governments to snitch on people that they think are violating social distancing rules that have been in place. These are not laws. They're customs right now that we adapt for our safety and protection. Um, And yet, they're being treated as though they're inviolable. People are criticized for not having a mask. People get the, the stink eye because they had the audacity to cough because they have an allergy. I've decided from my experiences in the store that there are essentially three types of people when you go into the store when it comes to social distancing. Uh, one is the person who thinks that the world revolves around them and therefore everyone has to move to make way for them. They just go about their own business and expect everyone else to keep the six feet of dis- distance. Uh, then you also have uh, the people who, the second group, uh, the people who are so afraid that they're going to get the virus from you because obviously you are infected that they keep six feet away from everybody. Uh, that, that is their default. They're always, oh, no, someone's getting too close. I'm moving away. And then there's the people like me, I guess. That, that should not indicate that this is the best way to live, just saying this is what it is. You know. In my little world view, it's we both keep away from each other. We, we both give a little bit. This is not a game of chicken to, to see who's going to win, uh, but I move some and you move some, and uh, hey, it's all you know, It's all good. Why are we complaining here? We all give just a little bit. We compromise um, as opposed to the other views. There aren't very many of my type, <laughs> as I find in the stores these days. <laughs> and so I find myself having to play games of chicken with people when I'm not trying to play chicken with people. Um, anyway, back to this. Jesus has to clarify it for the disciples because they're not able to put the pieces together themselves because, well, you know, that M word again. From within. Out of the heart come, then again, come from within, they defile a person. In other words, what Jesus is getting at, and I left some things out there, you know, and we're gonna get to the specifics of what he talks about. Uh but the biggest problem you have is your own heart. Sin is not something out there floating in the air like a like a virus. Sin is within here the heart. Not the physical organ, obviously, uh, but really the person, Uh, the the part of you that processes information and makes decisions. uh, That is fundamentally flawed in a serious way. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that the disciples, as well as the scribes and Pharisees, needed to read their scriptures. Because right from the beginning, in Genesis 6, we find that the intent of every, of every man was evil. The inclination of people was evil. And let's not just think that that was, well, you know, that was in the time of Noah, and everything got fixed after that. God warned Noah in Genesis 9 that it was still the same way. We find when we get to Jeremiah uh, that the, the problem is, again, the deceitfulness of the heart. The heart is deceitful above everything and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, there is one. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So the real problem of humanity is not bad examples. It's bad hearts. And we all have them. It's not as though uh, some of us have good hearts, some of us have bad hearts. Everybody has a bad heart. And the reality of the matter is, and what Jesus is really getting at in his discussion and disagreement with the scribes and Pharisees, is that rules and regulations cannot change the heart. Now, that doesn't matter whether it's man's rules and regulations or even God's rules and regulations. Go to Romans 8. Paul has a high view of the law as he expresses in Romans 7. But when he gets to Romans 8, he talks about how what, we, what the law could not do. Why? Because of the weakness of the flesh. The problem is not with the law. The problem is the weakness of the flesh or the deceitfulness of the human heart. God's law isn't the problem, but what God's law does is reveal the weakness of the flesh to keep it. Now, the more we understand about COVID-19, the more it seems to be that what this particular virus does is it finds the weakness of your body. And that's why most of the people who are dying, not all of them, but most of them have underlying conditions. And what happens is those underlying conditions get magnified by this virus. And so it's not so much the virus killing the people, but these complications created by the virus that kills these people. That's what the law does. It reveals your weakness. So Jesus reveals the heart as the source of defilement. Does this mean that Jesus had a low view of sin? Because that is the accusation that has been going on by the scribes and the Pharisees, that because Jesus is not following the tradition of the elders, Jesus has a low view of holiness, Jesus has a low view of sin. Is that accusation accurate and true? That Jesus has a low standard for lifestyle. I mean, He is hanging out with drunks and hookers and tax collectors. By rejecting their rules, Jesus is not rejecting God's law as defining sin for us. Psalm 119, which we read part of earlier today, is something that Jesus would affirm completely. Jesus would affirm Psalm one. About meditating upon God's law day and night, that's what a wise person does. So Jesus is not tossing those things aside, but he's recognizing the fallenness of the human condition. And so he starts with a vice list, and we have uh, numerous vice lists within Scripture. Uh, Paul has them in uh, Ephesians and Colossians, and we see them in Galatians as well, Galatians 5. And it starts off with plurals, which are not often reflected in the English translations. So, uh, wickedness, deceit, oops, sorry, evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting. The next part's going to be singular, and so there seems to be a difference between these things. And uh, what seems to be the focus of these plural ones is these are actions. These are things that don't necessarily simply remain in the heart, but they come out in actions. But all of these things fail to conform to God's law. And so they're sin in that sense. But not only that, but they are also, because they're actions, they're also transgressions against the law of God. And so both parts of that definition of sin that we find in the Westminster Shorter Catechism come into play right here. The key is they start in the heart, not in the environment that you're in. A lot of school districts recognizing that uh, a lot of kids get free meals, and now that they're not in school, they don't get the free meals. uh, They continue to offer the free meals. And so, but they haven't limited it to anybody. They've said, you know, kids can come and get free meals, whether you're in the school system or not. And one of the distressing things that I read this week was the people who finally figured out, ah, I can go to more than one school with my kids who pick up a meal at each place and I can sell the extras to people and make money. Theft. Okay. It starts in the heart. It's the greed uh, that, that begins in one's heart and goes into theft, Because ultimately what they're doing is theft. They're taking more than they need and taking it from someone else who needs it uh, so that they can then sell it to others. It's theft. Our hearts are inclined towards these transgressions. This is part of the problem, and we are tempted within. A lot is made of pornography today. And rightfully so. But the problem isn't the pornography. The problem is the heart that wants pornography. Uh, The heart that is not content with um, God's provision for us. Pornography is only a problem because of the sinfulness of our hearts. And our looking for satisfaction in illegitimate ways. But it's not just about that. It's also about things like money. Money's not the problem. If we, if we abolished money, it, it, all of the problems of greed wouldn't go away. <laughs> There's always something to be greedy for because our hearts are greedy. And so the problem is not out there, well, if we just get rid of pornography, everything will be okay. Oh, if we just get rid of money, everything will be okay. Oh, if we just get rid of R-rated movies, everything will be okay. Oh, if we just get rid of those explicit lyrics and those, those uh, music videos, everything would be okay. It's not out there, the problems in here. <sighs> Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Uh, these singulars are indicating these are attitudes, sins of the heart. And these sins of the heart often drive one's actions. They're usually not visible in and of themselves, but they drive many of the sins that do become visible. Because I'm proud, I think I need that, and therefore I now steal of that. And so back to that principle of the the iceberg, you you see the, the visible sins. Well, these are the sins under the surface that you don't see but create the ones that you do see. What Jesus is getting at. In the midst of this, based on passages like Hebrews three and what we read in Jeremiah 17, we have to remember that sin is deceitful. Your sinful desires will come across to you as though they are innocent, as though they are wise, as though they are needs that are legitimate and should be satisfied. But what they really are are wolves in sheep's clothing. Don't listen to Disney. Don't follow your heart, because your heart is deceitfully wicked and will lead you to the pit. Which is why in Proverbs 4 we find, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Don't be worrying about what's out there, uh, but be focused about what's in here. So Jesus is affirming in all of this the sinfulness of sin. But what he's also doing is rejecting the band aids that the scribes and the Pharisees recommended. Because ultimately, there's only one cure for the problem of the sin within, and that is the cross of Christ. It is so sinful uh, that these human man-made traditions can't deal with it. It is so sinful uh, that only the sin-bearer, enduring the curse on the cross, can deal with it. And so we don't need new laws. We don't need uh, either the expansion of laws or the simplification, the reduction of laws, sort of lower, or lowering of the standard like some people think. We don't need biblical principles. What we need is a new heart. And that is precisely what was promised in the new covenant in the prophets that the heart of stone would be removed and a heart of flesh would be inserted. Not only that, but we see that Jesus continues to purify our hearts so that we're no longer defiled by our sin. And so Jesus does help us to see the pervasiveness of sin within. So first we see Jesus reveals the heart as the source of defilement, but Jesus also helps to see the pervasiveness of sin. But where does this leave those of us who are weary of the battle within? There are five things I want us to consider, five uh, applications that flow out of what Jesus has just said. And the first really ties to back to the reality of indwelling sin. Because of indwelling sin, meaning there's this remnant of corruption within us, okay? I've got some uh, quotations from the Westminster... Uh, confession of Faith that, that are there um, that I've referred to. You can go back and look at those. But particularly when we deal with um, the, the chapters on the perseverance of the saints and the assurance of salvation, I really get to the reality of there, is, there re- remains inner corruption or indwelling sin that produces all of the temptations we experience as well as the sins that we commit. Okay this indicates that we never will outgrow our need for the gospel it's not just for conversion it's not just for beginners it's for every christian who lives on the face of the earth that's because we all need the ongoing forgiveness of sins and we also need the ongoing or the the uh, the fact of the imputation of christ's righteousness to us And it's in Martin Luther's uh, commentary on Galatians that he really addresses this. So I'm going to read two sentences from it. A Christian is not he who has no sin, but he to whom God imputes not his sin through faith in Christ. That is why we so often repeat and beat into your minds... The forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness for Christ's sake. Luther gets it. That's why he just kept pressing the gospel, as he says, beating it into their heads. Yeah, returning to it again and again. Why? Because we're spiritual amnesiacs. We have spiritual ADD. Uh, oh, we put the pieces together, but we then forget. We put the pieces together, and we fall back into thinking that our sin is now accounted against us. Sinclair Ferguson writes, "But it is all too possible to have an evangelical head and a legalistic." heart. That we're prone to keep relapsing into this. And uh, Thomas Boston, for me, was incredibly helpful in understanding this, uh, that, we, that the, the covenant of works is still written upon our hearts. It's going to be erased one day, but it hasn't been fully erased yet. And we lapse into legalism with, when we don't pay attention to the gospel. this is why so many people, so many Christians, get caught in the performance trap, where if they're doing good, as Tim Keller says, it's like a seesaw. If you're doing really good, you're high up in the air, and you begin to be filled with pride. But if you're doing really bad, you begin to be filled with despair because you've forgotten that it's not your righteousness that matters before God. It's Christ's righteousness that matters before God. And so you're in prideful exaltation of self, or the defeat of despair based on your performance. And brothers and sisters, that's not how we're intended to live. We're intended to live as people who rejoice in the forgiveness of sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Grace are rooted in Christ for you. The second thing that this doctrine should produce within us is It should promote humility in us. It should promote people who recognize uh, that we stumble every day in many ways. It's about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about how good I am because I'm not good. Legalism tends to breed angry, arrogant Christians. And that's not what we're supposed to be. We're humble people. They're the ones that God gives grace to. He poses the proud and gives grace to the humble, as Scripture declares three times. And so if we listen to this and realize that sin is not out there, but in here, it ought to humble us so that we become recipients of grace. Third, and this goes back to the text here, but it's a parenthetical statement by Mark. But but let's wait for a second just because it's a parenthetical statement by Mark does not mean it shouldn't be listened to. Okay? Uh, we are not red-letter Christians. <laughs> that somehow the, the red letters in your Bible are more important than the other parts of your Bible. The same Holy Spirit is, has, has given us the whole Bible. The same Holy Spirit that was at work in Jesus is at work in Mark when he writes this parenthetical statement that says he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. Why would Mark say this? Jesus has been talking about the kingdom is at hand. And, and Mark is trying to point out one of the implications of this kingdom. And that there has been a shift because of the cross of Christ that the old food laws that we find in Leviticus, the old ceremonial laws have been fulfilled and done away with in Jesus. And so the Christians in Rome needed to stop fighting about which foods they could eat and which foods they couldn't. We see Paul addressing that in Romans 14 and 15. And this is part of, his, of what Paul says. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Don't get, up, get caught up in food laws. They don't matter anymore. There's a new kingdom that we live in out of the old kingdom. And this kingdom is about life in the Holy Spirit, not about whether or not you eat shellfish, or roadkill. (laughs) Though it's probably not wise to eat the roadkill, (laughs) because you don't know how long it's been there. What happens, however, as we see within Romans 14 and 15, as well as the parallel passages in 1 Corinthians, is that legalism turns us into the accuser of the brethren instead of the comforter of the afflicted. Instead of helping people who are, really, who are struggling with real sin, as defined by Scripture, we become accusers of the brethren based on these man-made laws. And when that is your pattern, you also then begin to accuse people who are guilty of real sins, as opposed to speaking to them as bruised reeds that need gospel help. And so you become cruel to those who struggle with sin. Fourth, parenting. This has something, I believe, to say about parenting. Uh, We need to balance rules for protection of our children, as well as the giving attention to the heart of our children, Scripture says, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4, you know, uh, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is the first commandment that comes with a promise. But then he says right next to it, parents, don't exasperate your children. How do you exasperate your children? There's really two ways to exasperate your children. I'm sure there's more. Um, But the two ways I want to talk about right now too many rules. And too many rules are often the product of thinking that, um, yes, there is an evil one, yes, the world is corrupt, but forgetting that the real problem of your child is their own heart. And thinking that as long as you keep all of that at bay, everything's going to be hunky-dory with with your little darling. It's not true. You're just going to raise a Pharisee. And so while you do need some rules to protect your children, Make sure you're not going overboard and and thinking that rules will save your children. Rules will not save your children. They can only protect your children, okay? We do have rules at our house, but I don't think my children find them too oppressive, except when it comes to be their day to clean up after dinner. But parents can also exasperate children by changing the rules all the time. (laughs) Okay, so the child doesn't know where they ever stand. They need to be consistent in the rules and consistent in in, uh, how you administer the rules. Okay. Children do need to submit. But parents need to be helping children to examine their own hearts when they don't submit. Fifth, this deceitfulness of sin means that there must be a commitment to community and to one another ministry. James goes there, chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so we see that Part of, this, of the, the life of the community ought to be confessing our sins to one another. We sort of ought, ought to be like an AA meeting. Hi, my name is Steve, and I'm an alcoholic. Okay? Except I wouldn't say that. I'd say other things because I'm not an alcoholic. But I struggle with sin, and you struggle with sin. And your struggle with sin may have different, uh, you know, paint a different picture than my struggle with sin. But the reality is, is we both struggle with sin. And in a grace-filled community, you can be honest about that. Not boasting in sin, but seeking help from one another for sin. Because again, he says, and pray for one another. And so the sharing of sin is intended to be the carrying of the other person's burden uh, when, when they are persistently overcome with particular temptations and, and tell, them, tell you about them, that's an invitation for you to pray for them. That's part of what we should be doing. But it's not just James 5, it's also Hebrews 3, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because we're dealing with such a pernicious enemy, we have to be together as a band of brothers, so to speak, and making war and, and exhorting and encouraging one another. Paul Tripp applies these passages when he says, because sin blinds me to me, as long as there is still sin inside me, there will be pockets of blindness in my view of me. So as long as we all have these blind spots, we need gently spoken words, not accusers of the brethren. Let me explain that for a second. I can't move too far, or the camera doesn't like me anymore. And this doesn't like me anymore either. Yeah, I posted a joke. There was a there was a meme yesterday that I posted, or or I shared, and I thought it was really funny. And I was uh, not trying to be political about it, but I just thought it was funny. And someone private messaged me, and gently said, "Maybe you should rethink that." So that's someone coming alongside and helping you see blind spots so you can course correct. Okay. That's what I have in mind. Too often, and there have been a number of these, uh, the person who becomes the accuser of the brethren, and when you're a pastor, you sometimes can accumulate these. People who really aren't interested in helping you grow they're more interested in just pointing out your faults because ultimately I think it gets back to they don't want to look at their own. As I look at most of these situations over the course of 20 plus years of ministry, that's what I see. People who had bigger problems, but instead of looking at their big problems are focusing on little things and trying to beat the snot out of me. So, maybe that's what you have to do to your accusers. Is there something going on that's pretty big in your life? But, so I don't, when we talk about the graceful community, the, the community formed and sustained by the gospel, uh, it's one where we're not, where we're coming alongside each other to help each other in our struggle with sin because we all have it. It's not about the sin police who are coming down with anger about your sin. Uh, who, are, who are exposing it really to hurt you. But the people who are coming along gently, okay, like it says in Galatians, Galatians 6, gently restore. People who are gently coming along and saying, I think you're struggling. Do you want to talk about it? That's the vision of the New Testament. And that is my vision for Desert Springs. Not accusers of the brethren, but helpful brethren. Let's put it another way. Proverbs says the the wounds of a friend are faithful. Why are are the wounds of a friend faithful? Because he comes to you with a scalpel and not a broadsword. He's coming to heal you and, and to, to deal with a specific issue, not to bloodend you or maim you. And those things are very different. And you know it when you feel it and the character of how someone addresses you. Generally, anyway. Sometimes you've got baggage that keeps you from that, but that's a different story for a different day. So not accusation, not condemnation, but point them to Jesus and praying for one another. And so in response to this third question, the answer really is that Jesus calls us to a gospel-formed and sustained community. That's how he strengthens the weary soul, the sin-weary soul. And so if we bring all of this together, Jesus says holiness starts in the heart. Well, the source of sin isn't outside of you. Uh, To be sure, the devil and the world tempt you, but they are successful only because our hearts are inclined toward evil. What defiles us is not Hollywood or Wall Street, uh, but the lust, greed, and more that flow out of our own hearts. Jesus offers us this new heart in the new covenant. Conversion begins this healing process, but it really isn't finished in this life. And so as a result, we see that Jesus continues to purify our sin-weary hearts through his work on the cross. But Jesus also gives us this gospel community uh, to help us to stop following our hearts and continue to follow him instead. Let's pray. Father, um, Thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves, uh, but uh, that you sent your son to save us from sin. And that means saving us in part from ourselves because of the sin that resides within us. And help us to understand the the greatness of our need and the fact that Jesus is the only one who can save us, that there are no bootstraps to pull ourselves up by. Uh, This is a salvation that must come from outside because our problem is inside and we are just messed up. So thank you for such a savior and help us to trust in him and to grow as a community that trusts in him. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.